Welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Slate's culture editor, Forrest Wickman, and I'm on the line with the Hobbs to my Shaw, or maybe it's the other way around, uh, Slate senior editor, Sam Adams. How's it going, Sam? Uh, very well. I actually spent some time trying to figure out uh, which of us was which, and I, I felt like I was the Shaw, but if you want to be the Shaw, that's fine with me. Too. I mean, we we both want to be the Hobbs, I assume. I I sort of do, but I don't really feel like I could pull that off. Like I I feel like I could maybe I could I have a Shaw potential. I'm not. I don't know. I don't know that I really uh have a Hobbs in me anywhere. Yeah, you're taller. Neither of us is British. The, I think the point of this movie, as we'll get into, is there's not actually that much difference between Hobbs and Shaw, and I can't claim there's really that much difference between either of us. So. Um, as you have gathered, we're here to spoil the ninth movie in the Fast and Furious franchise, which is also the first spin-off. As the title of the podcast suggests, we will be spoiling everything that's in the movie. I don't know how much there really is to spoil because pretty much everything was in the trailer. But if you don't want to find out about who the A-list comedians are who are randomly in this movie who are not advertised or how many tow trucks it takes to win a tug of war with a helicopter, come back and listen after you've seen the movie. Sam, I feel like we should start by just laying out our histories with the franchise and maybe how we see this movie as fitting in, you know, pro or con, best of the franchise, worst of the franchise. So you're a completist, is that right? Yes, that is correct. I can't claim to have seen all of them in order, but I, you know, I think around the time of, of the third or the fourth when I, people started to get actually excited about them i went and you know started watching all the ones uh from the beginning so i have now spent uh i guess it's roughly 20 hours of my life watching fast and furious movies say it with pride uh, yeah i think i might be described as a sort of fast and furious fair weather fan i watched the first one and i think maybe the second one when they came out and then sort of fell off when when there was an idea at least among some, that, you know, the middle movies, two, three, four, perhaps are not as good, although I think there are some Justin Lin supporters out there. And then I came back pretty strongly around the seventh one and kind of went back and watched the... So I've seen nearly all of them, but not quite all of them. I have not seen Tokyo Drift, which will figure into this movie eventually in ways that perhaps you will be able to explain better than I can. I will try. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how much how well it can really be explained. Um, and and where would you say this movie fits in for you uh, relative to the other ones? Are you pro or con? I am I am pro. I'm sort of cautiously pro. I mean, this is as, as you mentioned, kind of a, a spinoff. And um, you know, the movie has been going in a, a pretty sort of firm direction for the last three or four installments, where there, you know it's still kind of nominally car racing movies, but it's just getting kind of bigger and more ridiculous. The stunts are getting more and more outlandish. Uh, it's been kind of grounded by the whole sort of Vin Diesel family aspect of it, that aspect, because as we'll talk about, Vin Diesel is not in this movie for a number of reasons. That aspect is gone from this. So this, this is just purely like way off in the fantasy direction. You know, the villain in this movie is, you know, practically a sort of cybernetic superhero, which is not something you could pull off in the kind of mothership franchise. So you know, it's getting more, it's really leaning very hard into the ridiculousness of the franchise, which has uh, both, I guess, good and bad aspects to it. Yeah, I think there was a narrative before this movie came out that this was the movie when the Fast and Furious franchise finally really becomes a superhero franchise. And I think that plays out pretty well in the movie. I mean, you have your villain calling himself Black Superman, but also there's always been an aspect where like Vin Diesel's character, Dominic Toretto, in all of the movies has kind of been 
like um, Unbreakable, the Bruce Willis character from those movies where he just seems inexplicably indestructible. And The Rock basically plays a superhero in everything he ever does. So that's kind of happening. And then and then it feels like it's becoming there's been a progression from sort of unintentional comedy to intentional comedy, which I think I as much as I appreciated the unintentional comedy of especially the sort of earlier ones, I think I prefer the intentional comedy of these. And I think we might differ on those. But let's get into it. We've already talked about our villain, our black Superman. And the first scene of this movie kind of introduces our two new characters. Sam, who are those two new characters? All right. Well, the most important new character from my point of view is Vanessa Kirby as here's our first spoiler, Hattie Shaw, uh, Deckard Shaw's sister. She is a, an MI6 agent who is involved in helping to uh, sort of overseeing the transportation of what we will come to learn is called the snowflake virus, which is sort of a programmable super virus slash MacGuffin that could kill everybody on Earth if it falls into the wrong hands. Those wrong hands belong to Idris Elba's character, who apparently, I am learning only from the internet, is named Brixton Lore. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they, they definitely give his first name, which I kind of love. I mean, I, I can't claim to know my, you know, London neighborhoods and so on that well. But, the, you know, I, I gather that Idris Elba has a sort of working class London accent and that that's a kind of working class London neighborhood. And I, I, I mean, I think if you listen to like any British hip hop, you kind of know where Brixton is. Like, exactly. Yeah. Right. One of London's like very famous like working class neighborhoods. So yeah, so he is the bad guy trying to get a hold of the, this virus. She is the MI6 agent who, after her entire team is wiped out, decides that the only way to keep this virus safe is to inject it into her bloodstream. So she kind of narrowly escapes. He comes and twirls his mustache and says curses. And then they are both on the run. And uh, it comes to Deckard and Shaw to track them down. Yeah, it's even less subtle than him twirling his mustache in the sense that when he first shows up, somebody is just like, who are you? And he just goes, bad guy, (laughs) which is like a great way of both like just laying out everything you need to know right away and also just signaling that this is not a movie that's dealing in in subtlety at all. Okay, so now we get back to our actual two main characters, who are, of course, Hobbs and Shaw, who are introduced in this sort of split-screen montage. Sam, in your review, you wrote about how this montage, like, extensively lays out the differences between them, but also mostly just shows how, how much the same they are. I don't, do you want to talk about the montage at all? Sure. It's a split-screen, and we should mention, I guess, at this point that this movie is uh, directed by uh, David Leach. Oh, yeah who was a co-director on the first John Wick and then uh, kind of went off on his own with Atomic Blonde. So, yeah, so here's our split-screen sequence that introduces our two heroes. They are both basically on parallel quests to kind of track down a source who can give them information about this hijacking. And it is kind of purportedly showing, oh, they go about things in their own ways, you know, and Hobbes is very kind of, you know, rough and muscular and Shaw is kind of, you know, clever and laddish. But it also shows us, you know, that, okay, they're both waking up in bed at the same time. They're both leaving their house in a car at the same time. They're both kind of meet the bad guys and have their little introductory quip at the same time. And those things are different, like Shaw drives a sports car and Hobbs drives a kind of beat-up truck. But they're still basically doing the same things in ways that are kind of slightly cosmetically different. So it's kind of showing us, like, it's kind of setting this up as like an odd sock buddy cop comedy. But at the same time, they're really not that disparate there's not like a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of daylight between the the kinds of people they are right yeah it does have some sort of wonderful details like uh we see the rock reading nietzsche i don't even remember i think the book just might say nietzsche like nothing else on it or something which pays off a little bit later but mostly we learn that they're essentially the same including that they both are okay with just like torturing people which is a slightly soured you know this is i really love this movie it is not a perfect film and there are some some parts that played slightly sourly for me and including the moment when dwayne johnson is trying to get information out of some bad guy and the way he does it is by taking a tattoo gun to his forehead to sort of torture him and he writes i heart cops which is I guess kind of funny in a certain light, but also a little gross. Yeah, there isn't. I mean, we'll we'll kind of get to this later, but I mean, uh, what they're doing with Dwayne Johnson's character in this movie, and it's kind of, I mean, he's been a kind of, you know, government agent like all along, but the way they kind of try to make that palatable in this movie, and, and we eventually find out 
in the last segment that he like kind of snitched on his own family is really kind of uh, interesting, (laughs) I would say. Yeah, maybe they'll find a way in future movies to retcon that so as if he didn't actually do it or something, which is these movies inevitably turn all of the the villains or anybody who does anything bad into somebody who it wasn't really their fault. We can keep liking them. So, yeah, so they're, you know, they're separate between Los Angeles and London. And then we finally see them come together through two unexpected vehicles. I mean, had you seen that either of these actors were in this movie from advertising? I had not. I don't I don't, I don't think, I don't think are... they were in trailers or anything. No, they definitely weren't. I don't think they were. Like, there's a big uncredited cameo later, which we'll we'll get to. But this right. is uh, but Ryan Reynolds and Rob Delaney as the agents who are uh, agents and kind of you know fans of these two guys who are set out to kind of draft them into working on this mission. You know, that's where you really you know it leans very hard into the kind of comic relief part of this. I mean, you just have. I mean, Rob Delaney is purely a comedian. Ryan Reynolds can kind of do drama and comedy, but I think is at this point definitely more successful for doing the latter. You know, you were being told. Very, in no uncertain terms, not to take this movie too seriously. Right. There's like a surprising number of Game of Thrones references throughout the sequence. It's, it's, there's a really surprising amount of runtime in this movie dedicated essentially to what it, it just feels like Ryan Reynolds riffing. I have not confirmed how much of it is improvised or written by Reynolds, but it really feels that way. It sort of feels like him doing a little bit of Deadpool. I mean, he tends to do a, a version of the same thing. I think maybe, I, I, found that despite myself, I mostly enjoyed Ryan Reynolds in this movie and laughed at him a lot, even as I was kind of exhausted by him. I gather you might have appreciated Ryan Reynolds somewhat less. I mean, he is, I mean, I like Ryan Reynolds. I find him like very ingratiating. I feel like he is really in a Deadpool shaped rut at this point, And he is basically doing kind of another, another version of that character here. And I do find it a little, when he is just allowed to riff kind of endlessly, I do find it kind of exhausting. I mean, I probably laughed at some point because he's like one of those people who like won't give up until you stop laughing. And eventually you're like, okay, if I laugh, will you stop? Um, but yeah, so this, not only during his scenes, but then there are, uh, I don't know, seven, nine, 150,000 <laughs> post-credit scenes in yeah. which each character just comes back and like keeps riffing. And, you know, it's my job to see the whole movie and maybe write a post if there's an interesting thing in the post credit scene. So I'm sitting there through these whole things and you come back in and it's just more Ryan Reynolds riffing. And, and at that point, it's really just like enough already. Yeah, there's a lot of I would describe the both my reaction and the reaction of the audience at oh man, I, I can't believe I have to even confess this. I've seen this film twice. And at both screenings, I would say the reaction to Ryan Reynolds was very much just like groans. <laughs> in, in, in all in all senses of that word, it's like laughing, but in a in a sort of exhausted oh dad kind of way. Okay, so Ryan Reynolds and Rob Delaney bring our heroes together finally, and then we just kind of get our first of several sequences in this movie where they do it's it's almost like a version of the dozens. They just they just do trash talk at each other. And Sam, this is another aspect of this movie that we have talked about a little bit. I think I liked these scenes maybe a little bit more than you did. They're kind of they're they're at once like dick measuring and also a parody of of a pissing contest at the same time. And I think I was able to see the parody as- or chose to saw the parody aspect of it, perhaps. But there's another way of looking at it where it's just like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too kind of thing. Right. I mean, I don't think they're totally, you know, sort of straightforward. But yeah, there's there's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of alpha male clashes between them to the extent that Vanessa Kirby's character would send forward like, oh, you two alpha males should stop clashing with each other. And it's <laughs> yeah. just like, yeah, we, we, we knew that was going. Go. But I mean, it's not even the, you know, the sort of, repetitiveness of just like the endless dick jokes but there i mean like like dwayne johnson actually makes like a joke about how oh like like a your mother joke at some point yeah like right it's just like like people are getting paid a lot of money to write these movies like i feel like you could if you're gonna do a your mother joke it's got to be a really good your mother joke and this is really just like i just left your mother yeah there's definitely a, a shagginess to this movie that is a little bit disappointing and i think these scenes are one place where we can see that i read something that suggested that a lot of this scene was just improvised by statham and the rock and you know on the one hand they're pretty good at it i mean dwayne johnson made his name as a wwe fighter 
just talking trash in the ring and being appealing as he did it. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, this isn't, I didn't go to see a WWE match. I went to see a movie where you would, as you say, like come up with a better liners given that you have a whole year to write your best version of a Yo Mama joke or whatever it has to be. Right. Sigh. Okay, so unsurprisingly, they don't get along. And then it splits off into two separate sequences. I don't know how much we really want to spend on this because I, I found these to be not the best sequences in the movie. But Jason Satham goes off and has – he goes to, you know, the person who we now know is his sister. He goes to her apartment. There's like – it's very kind of David Leach, uh, John Wicky, where the whole thing is lit kind of pink and blue, kind of bisexual lighting for completely inexplicable reasons, I think. I don't know what security system just immediately strobes between pink and blue at a regular apartment. And then the better sequence, I think, is Dwayne Johnson fighting Vanessa Kirby. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that one a little bit. Well, I have, as if anyone listening to this has read my review, you will know that I am a huge fan of Vanessa Kirby yeah, in this she's movie. So good in this. I will admit that I, I do not watch The Crown, so I'm aware that uh, people who watch that series are already well aware of her. I know her primarily from her role as the what we eventually found out is that is the daughter of um, Vanessa Redgrave's uh, Max character in the Mission Impossible Fallout, and she just you know in that movie was kind of wearing like a sort of slinky satin dress and looking like a nightclub singer from like a 1930s movie, and yet also being a sort of very high powered dealer in extremely deadly arms. In this one, she is you know more of a kind of you know hand to hand combat fighter enough to at least for a while, pretty well hold her own against Dwayne Johnson, who is, I don't know, a foot <laughs> a foot taller and probably twice her weight. But she just, you know, in addition to having the kind of physical combat stuff done, she just has a really great sort of cool presence that fits, uh, really kind of sets off the much more aggressive energy of, of both of the movie's male leads. I mean, she's a real component in, I think, just even the making the movie watchable, let alone enjoyable. And there are, you know, a lot of scenes where she is, like, literally physically positioned between the two of them, and, and that is kind of, you know, the space she occupies in the movie more generally. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with you that she's really the best part of this movie. And the movie kind of asks her to do everything. I mean, it asks her not only to do all of that combat, which she does remarkably well and convincingly, uh, even going up against The Rock, but she kind of, she's asked to carry pretty much all of the drama. That's a little strong, not all of it, but she, they, the camera kind of tends to drift towards her face in the more emotional moments, and she's really good at, at, at those as well. It was only the second time that I saw this movie that I realized that in the last act of the movie, they kind of suddenly just decide that Vanessa Kirby's character is like a super hacker. And I don't think it's ever really explained how. But the first time I just went with it, because I think she's just really good at selling all of this really preposterous stuff, specifically what she does, we'll get to it eventually, but she hacks into the most advanced like cyber crime organization in the world. And... Am I right, Sam, that it's just like it's never really set up? I mean, we see her like occasionally type quickly on a keyboard earlier on in a way that maybe lulls you into it, but it's it's not really yeah. explained. I mean, the Fast and Furious movies like definitely love their kind of sexy female hackers at this point, and it has for sure become a thing. Yeah, so it is I, – yeah, I don't think it is particularly established other than that she's like an MI6 secret agent and so is presumably good at everything. But, you know, the movie kind of has to find things for her to do while Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham are off um, beating the crap out of people and driving cars. And I, and I feel like in a way it is almost like an act of mercy towards them to, like, put Vanessa Kirby off doing her own scenes because she's just so much more interesting than them in, in every scene. There's a, a scene kind of near the end of the movie where they just go to – I think they're getting weapons from some friend of Shaw's. And they're and so Shaw's kind of out in front, and she and and Hobbs are just kind of standing on the steps behind him, and it's just you know, and the Rock's just sitting there with this look on his face, like I'm standing here waiting for someone else to recite a line of dialogue, and she has this really kind of complicated, like half smirk, kind of you know, crooked thing going on with her mouth, and it's just so much more than needs to be done in that scene, but it, it's just like the level to which she is just making like every shot of her like interesting and like worth looking at for for some for some reason 
Yeah. Before we move on, the other thing I want to ask whether you could make any sense of is there's a sort of wonderful sequence that I, that we skipped over a little bit where Dwayne Johnson finds Vanessa Kirby's character by looking at like a street map of London and like isolating the parts of the map that don't have cameras. And it turns out there's only one part of the city. And so he concludes that she must be there. I mean, it's mostly just one of those scenes in a movie where somebody stares at a screen and says things like enhance and invert it. I think invert it is an actual line in this. Yes, yeah. Am I right that this didn't actually make any sense? I think you are correct. I mean, it is there. I think there's a little moment with this sort of like, you know, twitty, condescending uh, white tech person who's kind of explaining to Dwayne Johnson, like how CCTV works. And he's like, yeah, okay, idiot. Like, I know how it works. Like, put up the grid. And then, you know, show me all the areas covered by cameras in London. And then show me like the one part where the cameras don't cover. Yeah. So it's this little, you know, half a street in the middle of London that supposedly CCTV doesn't go on. And he says, well, she's smart. That's the one place she's going to be. Right. So I guess we're to believe that not only is there only one block or whatever in London that doesn't have the cameras everywhere, but also she just like hasn't left it for the previous right. 24 She's hours. She's just like, walking up and down this one street for several days. Yeah. I mean, she could also just be inside anywhere. <laughs> right, right. Impossible. Uh, we bring logic to bear on this movie. It's going to be a very short podcast. So. Um, okay, so Dwayne Johnson lifts Vanessa Kirby completely over his head with one arm and then brings her in. And, you know, we get a little bit of interrogation, but mostly it's just an excuse, I think, to get Hobbs, Shaw, and uh, Vanessa Kirby's character, who I just keep referring to as Vanessa Kirby's character because I, I'm, like, not entirely convinced they ever even say her name. Uh, she does not. She movie? does not feel like a hattie. That does not. Right. Mean. They yeah. mostly just like. There's one part where you know Hobbs and Shaw and Shaw's her brother are talking about her, and and Shaw just refers to her as the girl, which is a weird way to refer to your 33 year old sister or however old she is. But I guess the most charitable reading of that line is that these guys are macho, and so the movie doesn't just see her as the girl. It's Shaw well, who just sees her as the girl. Yeah, well, and then the other the sort of odd thing there is yeah, they talk about her as if she's a child, and yet at the same time there are these flashbacks to when Deckard and, right. and Hattie Shaw were, were children and were kind of coming up with all these various scams and schemes to do together. And in those flashbacks, they are, seem to be virtually the same age, and Jason Statham is basically at least 20 years older than Vanessa yeah. Kirby. He is like 51, and she is 31. So that is, I mean, you think, you know, the old Hollywood thing about, like, you know, pairing older men with the younger female love interests is bad. Um, this is a movie that's suggesting that two people who are 20 years apart are virtually the same age with no explanation. <laughs> it's just like, okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, you were saying that, like, applying logic to this movie, these movies will make them all fall apart immediately. But I, I think that, like, it is so much of the pleasure of these movies is just kind of reveling in how implausible they are. And so I insist that we must continue to do it, including in the next big set piece, maybe the best set piece in the movie, which is when, you know, our three heroes are together and Idris Elba's Brixton breaks in through the windows, steals Hattie, the Vanessa Kirby character, and then proceeds to, instead of jumping out of the building exactly like he he and his goons decide to run down the building. And so, you know, even listeners who may not have seen the movie will almost surely have seen this in the trailer it ends up being it's almost like one of those physics problems where it's like you drop a bowling ball and a feather off the roof at the same time and see which fall first or whatever so you have like both Hobbs and Shaw run after him Idris Elba's running down the building Shaw gets in an elevator and sort of like mashes the keypad or something, shoots it out so that the elevator starts dropping. And then Hobbs just kind of free falls out of the building. That's a classic. Like it's like in Star Wars, like, you know, the the rule is that if you shoot a door lock with a laser, the door opens. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. He just for some reason there's there is a, you know, Hobbs like kind of jumps out the window and starts free falling after these guys down the side of a skyscraper. Um, Shaw just gets to an elevator, like lifts up some panel and just smacks like the panel with his fist or the butt of a gun and the elevator stops dropping. And it's 
If that's a button, he could have just pushed it. If it's not, I don't know how smash. <laughs> well, but I think he needs it to fall faster than an elevator would normally yes. fall, right? Like, I think that's part of where the sort of hand waving comes in with the physics in yeah. this scene is they need to somehow figure out a way for these three people who are all dropping in different ways for them to, like, roughly fall at the same speed. And so yeah. Hobbs kind of, like, occasionally grabs onto the cable that Brixton has left and Shaw has, like, the elevator is kind of free-falling, but also maybe sort of still on its cable. It works. Like, it's wonderfully silly, and it makes, like, just enough sense, too. It is a little like, you know, if Dwayne Johnson leaves Chicago heading west yes. at 25 miles an hour. <laughs> like, yeah. All right. Well, and then and then I feel like the movie remembers, oh, shit, this is a Fast and Furious movie. We need cars, which is how our heroes end up in a McLaren, and then they're chasing Idris Elba and his baddies on a bunch of Triumph motorcycles. I feel like we see all of those brands in close-up a number of times. I shouldn't have repeated them we to give them do, their yeah. free product placement, but there it is. I don't know. Do you have anything? I thought the sequence was okay. Like, they, they seem to be struggling to come up with new fun things to, that they still have to do with the vehicles in these movies, although they do come up with one later. There definitely is, like, a, a sort of, you know... And as, as this movie like gets towards its final act, it's sort of it's like, oh right, like we're a Fast and Furious movie, like we need to do stuff with cars, and we need to say the word family nine million times. Uh, but before that, yeah, it is. I mean, you know, Leech, his passion really seems to be kind of stunts and you know physical hand to hand combat. There's a lot of sequences in this movie that are involved in like kind of disabling guns like even in the first scene it's like when mi6 goes in with their guns they're like oh electric rounds only and there's a whole thing later about the the bad guys having guns that are activated by like sort of authorization chips in their gloves and those get disabled by super hacker vanessa kirby so the movie keeps kind of putting guns into the equation and then taking them out you know you can sort of feel like the lack of interest on its part like can we just do something other than like shoot at people and blow things up and find some other reason for them to like just punch each other i think that for me the most notable moment in that this car chase you're talking about is there's a, a moment when shaw is driving and he does he does a basically tokyo drifts his convertible right, under right. a sort of sideways uh, tractor trailer and uh it resolves his character Basically does that with a motorcycle, and this motorcycle somehow has a thing where, like, the front half can twist <laughs> sideways while the rear wheel – and I've actually – because this has been a gift, I've watched it online, and you can see him, like, the front half of the motorcycle, like, twist sideways. He puts his feet on the ground. You can actually see smoke, like, issuing from under his boot heels as he's doing this. So somehow his motorcycle is – I swear to God, they actually even steal the sound effects from the Transformers movies. But his, right. his motorcycle is basically, like, half Transformer and somehow, like – disconnects and twists in half so he can slip through this incredibly narrow gap between like a set of rapidly closing wheels and keep pursuing them because he is uh, as he mentioned black superman yeah that's definitely the best moment in this sequence and it in, indeed it was an applause moment in my theater the, the one i have one correction to make which is i feel like this movie i'm pretty sure about this this movie it knows that we've seen a car slide under a truck before and so its big idea is what if two trucks? Yes, <laughs> and so I believe they direction. slide under yeah. two pickup trucks or big rigs that are passing by each other. Wonderful moment. All right. We have not talked much about this, how the super virus is, is the sort of ticking clock in the center of the movie. And uh, Hattie, the Vanessa Kirby character, needs it out of her in, what is it, like 36 hours or something? Uh, something like that. Some, yeah, some random number of hours. Yes. And so they, they like track down Professor Andreco, who is the scientist character played by Eddie Marsan, uh, who is wonderful in this movie, as he so often is. Doing, a, I think, what I feel like is a deliberately terrible Russian accent. <laughs> right, in this. right. He's, yeah, he very much seems like somebody who knows he's in a, I was going to say B movie and like, this is not really a B movie, but it's in, it's in the sort of B movie exploitation tradition, I guess is the way to talk about it. And he seems to know that very well. And Professor Andreco explains that they need to either just straight up kill her and burn her body very, very thoroughly in order to get rid of this virus before it melts the insides of all of humanity, or they need to find this one extraction machine that's, it's like... What, it's somewhere in the general vicinity of Russia? I'm not sure I understood all of the 
I believe it's in the uh, the sort of main compound of this kind of shadowy organization called Etion. I, right. I believe it is, and it's yeah, it's in Ukraine somewhere. It's in what kind of looks like a former like power plant, or a, they're sort of like vaguely like nuclear concrete it's structure, kind of Chernobylish at, at yes. points. Yeah, so they need to go, you know, find the one widget to get the other widget little capsules containing the virus, which is not yet empty, entered her bloodstream. Um, the capsules are going to dissolve at a certain point, and then once the virus is in her, not only will she die, but then she will pass it on to everyone, and they will all die because it is a programmable virus that has not yet been programmed, and so I think the ideas can basically adapt to anything until that happens. Right, so they need to get the MacGuffin extraction machine in order to get the MacGuffin out of her, and so they fly to the Ukraine, which is when we meet the next surprise A-list comedian cameo. Do you want to talk about Kevin Hart? Yes. Well, yeah, this is after the scene where they kind of put on ridiculous disguises to slip through customs because they're all on the run. Decker Shaw thinks it's very funny to get uh, Hobbs subjected to a body cavity search, um, which is, I mean, if you want to write about like, you know, sort of a homosocial subtext in these movies, you could, you know, get a very solid master's thesis out of it. But I guess that, yes, they both end up on the plane and they uh, suddenly are, are confronted by an air marshal played by Kevin Hart, who then proceeds to talk for like, I don't know, six <laughs> minutes straight about so how he's, you know, an air marshal who used to be like like JSOC or something. Like he had a, some sort of impressive job and is now like an air marshal, which, of course, both Hobbs and Shaw spotted immediately. But he's like, hey, can I, you know, can I do something with you? I just want to like help you guys out. Um, I saw a. Uh, I think it was an interview with the director that compared him to Leo Getz, uh, Joe Pesci's character in the Lethal Weapon movies. And it is very right, much that. Yeah. Like, what if I just bring like this crazy comic energy to this one scene? But it also just feels like you could very easily just cut those minutes out of the movie entirely and you would never miss them. So it's just like, hey, we got Kevin Hart to show up. Yeah. Or, yeah. The Pesci comparison is very good. Also, I mean, also just kind of like there's the physical gag of him being so much smaller. And I mean, Kevin Hart is pretty well built for his size, but obviously he constantly jokes about his his size. The, the one part of the sequence that I really appreciated as somebody who... So it was in, when the seventh movie came out, I asked one of our video producers to do a whole video just an analyzing who, in fact, had the deepest voice of all of the deep-voiced actors in Fast and Furious 7, because you have, like, Vin Diesel, who, you know, is famous for his growl to the extent that he voices Groot in every language, The Rock, Jason Statham, you even had, like, Kurt Russell in that one. And in this movie, you just get a scene where Kevin Hart Starts talking like this. It's a gag I've definitely seen in other movies. I was trying to remember what recent movie did the exact same gag, but it still it still worked on me again. Yeah, so they both keep trying to get him to stop and like, why are you doing that with this voice? And he's like, I'm not doing anything with my voice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, do you know? What? I think I remember what it is. I think it's in one of the Avengers movies. Chris Pratt starts doing the Chris Hemsworth voice. I think an imitation of Thor. Anyway, not the most original joke, but still a fairly good one. And I think, I mean, that Kevin Hart scene is very much kind of, and just his kind of comedy in general is is very much kind of an illustration of how this movie is like, if we keep doing things fast enough, like maybe you won't notice that like a lot of the jokes kind of aren't really jokes and that a lot of the things we do like don't make sense, but it's just like the buy-in is we're not going to slow down. We're going to keep doing ridiculous stuff. If you just go really fast with us and enjoy it. You will have a good time and we're not going to give you any reason or any excuse to like slow down and think about things at any point. Right. And then the movie's other big idea is what if we do the same thing as other movies, but twice as much of it, which is what happens in the next sequence where they're like, every movie has a hallway fight. What if we had two hallway fights? And then you get Hobbs doing one hallway fight beside Shaw doing another hallway fight, which I mean, kind of making fun of the sequence, but it, it's like it's in on the joke, right? It's that's, I think, also one of the better sequences in the movie where they kind of are showing off against each other. While right. And this is also kind of this, this split screen, uh, you right. know, kind of redux. Like they're both there are two doorways. And I don't even remember if they exactly established it. But for some reason, they both need to go down their separate hallways and like <laughs> push a button or turn a key at the end at the same time. It's obviously just an excuse. Um, so they kind of you know, pick doors before they opening them and Statham opens his and there are like 15 guys in there that he has to wade his way through. And so, you know, Dwayne Johnson's just kind of laughing at him and then he opens his door and oh, there's one guy there, no problem. But then the guy stands up and he is, you know, somehow like nine feet tall. So it was, you know, 
supposed to be this very big um, adversary for him to fight. And I think he lays him lays him low with one punch and just kind of sits there and kind of twiddles his thumbs and makes faces while Statham is like brutally, you know, fighting his way through this mob of, of people. And then they they it turns out to be entirely pointless, essentially, because they make their way to the other end of the hallway and see Brixton just I guess they were just waiting on the other side throughout the entire yes. hallway fight. Just kind of looking just watching at their the watches. Show. Yeah. And so Brixton and his goons take uh, Hobbs and Shaw captive and he starts kind of electrocuting them, which is is like kind of another pretty long sequence. I will say Idris Elba is really good in this movie with a lot of really silly dialogue. Like he's really good at villain monologues. I think it's the Jungle Book movie that he plays one of the villains in that he's really good. He plays, uh, I guess, like Shere Khan or something. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was just forgetting. I was wanted to call him Shaw Khan. Like <laughs> right. So, yeah. And he he like he delivers. This is certainly my favorite line in the movie, which is he's explaining his evil plan, and it involves like killing off the vast majority of humanity because otherwise humanity will kill itself off. Because of this is not my favorite line, but it's up there. He says something like environmental degradation, capitalism, and terrorism, and it's just like you just slipped capitalism in there, Hobbs and Shaw. Right. Like this movie is. The villain, I guess, is anti-capitalist. He's, he's DSA, I think. He's anti-capitalist. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But it's basically like this sort of Thanos rationale. Like we have to, you know, kill most of humanity in order to save it. But one thing, one line that Thanos doesn't say that Brixton does is they're like, you're just going to do genocide? And his response is genocide, schmenocide. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, okay. What can you say to that? Yeah, this was, I mean, this was the point in the movie where I was like, okay, this has been fun. Like, this is a pretty good action sequence. I guess we're almost over. And I, then I sort of snuck my phone out of my pocket. And I realized that we were only like an hour and 10 minutes into a, you know, two and a half hour movie. And, and that my heart sank like a little bit at that point, <laughs> I have to admit. <laughs> it was just like, oh my God, there's so much more left after this. Yeah, it feels like a third act climax. I mean, it feels like they couldn't blow up any more than they possibly blow up during this sequence. So it feels like it must be the end. And yeah, I mean, the, se- the sequence ends with them basically literally dropping a building on Idris yes. Elba's character. Cause they keep having to come up with these ways to like, to prevent his superhuman character from actually killing them so they can get away. And then Idris Elba can chase them again. So in this case they drop, I guess it's giant uh, smokestack falls on him and you know, he, knocks him down for like five seconds, which is long enough for them to drive away. Yes, I think I think your dropping a building description was accurate. And, uh, you know, somehow when they dropped that building, they ended up breaking their virus extraction machine. And so then you get this sort of false cadence where they think they've lost and it's the Dark Knight of the Soul part of the movie, except Dwayne Johnson has a solution, which is... The solution is to go to Samoa. In addition to uh, sharing taste in cars and hand-to-hand combat, Hobbs and Shaw both have estranged siblings. Shaw's already met his, and now it is time for Hobbs to to meet his and uh, take them all back to Samoa, where his brother, who is the best mechanic, he knows somehow also qualifies him to fix this incredibly sophisticated piece of kind of medical computer hardware. Yeah, I think there's an implication that the brother is essentially one of the greatest mechanics in the world <laughs> conveniently <laughs> literally no other person in the entire world they could go to and yeah i was you know i was sort of starting to flag a little bit at this part of the movie but the samoa stuff i have to say is really wonderful where you get i mean this is um i guess kind of dwayne johnson's kind of second big sort of reclamation of his samoan heritage and it feels very It's at once, like, very silly and quite earnest, and I would even say a little moving. So he goes back and he reunites with his family, which includes a bunch of actors who are generally, like, Pacific Islander. That's something the movie clearly cared about. So you have Cliff Curtis as his brother. Cliff Curtis is an actor who Slate once did a video a few years ago that's just Cliff Curtis plays every ethnicity. So Cliff Curtis is in everything, yeah. (laughs) He's in everything, and he's, like, he's played black characters. He's played Hispanic characters. He's played, like, an Iraqi terrorist in uh, Three Kings. And 
And I think he's Maori and, uh, you know, playing a Samoan character in this. And you get Roman Reigns, who is another pro wrestler who I think he what you might know more about this, but he's basically came up in The Rock's wake and is also Samoan. I think that is literally all I know about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, we're on the same page. And they sort of hatch a plan to make their, you know, last stand for humanity, which, as you alluded to before, involves Vanessa Kirby's character hacking all of the guns so that the guns no longer work so we can get back to the hand-to-hand combat that David Leach wants to enact. And then they e- it even gives them an excuse to use a bunch of old Samoan weapons, which they refer to as like relics or something, and then stage a, a Siva Tau, which is kind of like the... Uh, Samoan haka, like a a war dance, which, you know, seeing Dwayne Johnson do that in this movie that's probably going to make, I don't know, maybe not a billion dollars, but a a lot, several hundreds of millions of dollars, I found, you know, genuinely uh, moving. Did this movie win you back at all with all of its uh, corny Samoan pride? I mean, uh, that is definitely like, uh, you know, I, I do think there is something very like kind of moving about that and both, you know, its place in like kind of Dwayne Johnson's career where he has also sort of often played kind of, you know, ambiguously or sort of non-specifically, yeah. you know, ethnic and for the the specificity in this and, and he even make sure, to, I mean, it, he always pronounces like Samoa in this. He never, say, he does not say Samoa, he pronounces it sort right. of the... The emphasis on the first syllable is the, is the kind of more authentic way to pronounce it, I believe. Right, right. So, yeah, so that is very, and that is also when like the, the one thing, you know, that I miss in this movie even though it also kind of uh, a little tiring in the kind of mothership movies is you know what makes the fast and furious movies work and i think you know what is largely responsible for their you know enormous and, and extremely durable success is they have this real blend of you know they have these very sophisticated elaborate you know action movies set pieces and then they just have this incredibly like corny you know the it's like a joke how often vin diesel says the word family in the movies but he never stops doing it the movies have never gotten too cool for that aspect of it and i think that's like there's a certain kind of dorkiness to vin diesel that like goes in with his sort of action movie body that really like makes the movies work in some way and i miss this movie is so kind of you know, self-consciously, you know, wink, wink about things that I kind of missed that, you know, kind of total corniness to this. And that the last act is where that kind of, you know, comes back in a little bit. And it's very broad, like a lot of the movies. I mean, you have a part right when Hobbes' character shows up when his mom, you know, who's standing on the porch of a house, like 50 yards away, like throws a slipper at him and somehow like perfectly nails him. Yeah. Like she should have been a major league baseball pitcher at that point. (laughs) Yeah. I think it like knocks him off his feet. I think it like knocks him off his feet more than basically any other blow does in the entire movie. Yes. But yeah. So, you know, the movie is like leaning into that and there, there's a great, I mean, just wonderfully ridiculous moment here where the, you know, his whole uh, family kind of tribe is basically, they're kind of, you know, stripped down to the waist, you know, uh, Dwayne Johnson is showing off his tattoos. They're kind of fighting, you know, the bad guys with the traditional weapons. Then the, the window of, you know, the satellite goes back in line or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And they could use guns again. And then the, the action scene kind of shifts into a more traditional kind of guns and cars thing. And there's literally a scene where like, you know, Dwayne Johnson is like running after a tow truck that Jason Statham is Mm -hmm. driving. And as he's doing it, he, Mm -hmm. you know, pulls off his traditional garb. He's got pants underneath and somebody just throws him a (laughs) t-shirt, which he then puts on as he's climbing aboard this truck. And it's just like, okay, obviously that this, that he would have a shirt on in the second half of the scene, but it's just like, the idea that he's got like some kind of, you know, Elvis roadie family member who just follows him around during the middle of this battle waiting to throw him a t-shirt is just the most like wonderfully, insanely ridiculous thing. I'm really glad you brought this t-shirt up because I really wanted to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, what they don't want the rock like it's really contrived and it, it stands out. And I couldn't figure out exactly why is they just don't want the rock to be shirtless during the final fight scene. It seems like that would be a plus for the movie. And maybe he didn't want him to be shirtless for, you know, like right. <laughs> once he's self-conscious enough. about his figure. Is that what you're suggesting? 
I don't know. Or, uh, yeah, or, you know, maybe they just figured like it was enough. I mean, it'd be kind of, you know, be like a little too sort of ridiculous if he's he's sitting there because this last sequence involves, you know, a helicopter trying to pull this truck that he's in off the road or them trying to keep the helicopter kind of tethered to them with this chain. And there's a point where, of course, if you've seen any movie with Dwayne Johnson, and as you know, this is always going to happen. Of course, the chain like slips off the winch at some point. Mm -hmm. And he is literally like keeping, you know, holding onto a helicopter that's trying to fly away with his arms and just like, you know, kind of bulging his biceps and like basically pulling a helicopter down to earth by hand. And so he's already, his whole body is already kind of, you know, swollen muscly at that point. And I think maybe they figured if he was doing that with his shirt off, it would just be a little bit, even, even for this movie, even for the rock, a little bit too much. It was, it was restraint is your theory. Yeah. I don't, I, part of me actually wondered whether they filmed these two set pieces out of sequence and like later realized, Oh shit. Like we just filmed this whole chase with Dwayne Johnson in a shirt. And now we have him doing this war dance shirtless. We need to figure out a way to make this transition and they were like don't worry we'll just have one of his brothers run and throw him a shirt which he'll put yeah. on well Ch- anyway yes i'm glad that the rock does not get ripped in half even if that is probably what would happen in real life uh yeah this is like the most purely fast and furious sea of all of the set pieces where you get It ends up being another sort of physics problem where it's how many tow trucks does it take to hold back a helicopter? And so they just keep clipping more and more tow trucks onto each other. One sort of confusing thing is that it seems to be an even fight, like an even tug of war, pretty much no matter how many tow trucks are on. Like it's at first one tow truck versus one helicopter and they're seem to be pretty evenly matched and then it's two and they seem to be pretty evenly matched and it doesn't make a lot of sense is what i'm saying <laughs> and every one of the drivers of these trucks is supposed to be like yet another one of his brother so it is, is literally like the family like coming back together and joining forces by like daisy chaining all their trucks they're all their like kind of awesome vintage chop shop trucks together to provide ballast to prevent this helicopter with Vanessa Kirby and Andrew Selva on it from flying off and taking her away forever. So after, oh, there's one more Fast and Furious essential element that the movie has not yet used that we have not talked about it yet. And that is, of course, boosts, nitro boosts, or in this case, moonshine boosts. They, they uh, got the Nas. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which they use to like sort of finally win this tug of war fight, but somehow the helicopter and one of the tow trucks, the one that has our three heroes in it, all kind of go toppling off a cliff, which leads to our climactic fist fight, which is like a slightly anticlimactic way to end a Fast Furious movie, I think. But it's pretty, there's a, a humor to it because it ends up being that the whole point of the fight is that Hobbs and Shaw need to once and for all learn to work together and coordinate because like, I, what, it's it's that Brixton's sort of AI enhanced brain can only process one muscly bald man coming at him at a time. And if there's two muscly bald men coming at him at a time, it can't process it. And then he gets hit. Right. He's essentially, I mean, he's essentially like a human being kind of computer enhanced. And he's basically like, you know, the Terminator, we even see things from his point of view with like this heads up display, but somehow the people who built him to be the super hand human next generation of evolution never considered that two people might try to punch him at the same time and that is too much for his brain to handle right it's not the first time in the movie where brixton has shown has had a showdown with more than one other opponent at a time but we can we can just ignore that so they of course hobbs and shaw win there's some sort of retconning here that i teased earlier that i i would like you to give your best shot at explaining i think they're trying to say that shaw like wasn't in control when he killed infamously killed han and somehow was being controlled by Etienne at the time. I didn't even catch that. I mean, I was I was still busy trying to figure out like where the estrangement between him and his sister happened, which they right. also kind of like garbled. I think they're into supposed something. to be the same. I think there's some implication that like Etienne got control of him at some point, forcing him to estrange himself from a, his sister and become a bad guy who would kill Han. I don't know. Yes. I mean, uh, one of the things I I appreciated about these movies is there. I mean, they have these incredibly sort of elaborate like complicated plots that they are nonetheless willing to like completely throw out the window if they have actors they like that they want to use again so they famously like rerouted the entire timeline to bring the character of han back from the dead for three movies because they're like we like that actor can we get him back in there so they're like what you know so it just becomes this weird you know for movies that are basically about cars going fast and like jumping over things they have this incredibly complicated 
Doctor Who-like alternate timeline thing going on, which is, uh, I, I enjoy the hell out of it. I, I do not spend that much time trying to understand. Right. The order of the movies is something like one, two, three, seven, <laughs> then four, five, six or something. Yeah. It's, uh... You need to diagram it with straws, I think, at this point. So they defeat... And also the fact that they had Jason Statham's character kill one of the most beloved characters in the franchise and then be one of the good guys in the next, be a villain in that movie, and then be somehow one of the good guys in the next movie, and now one of the sort of unabashed heroes. And this one is just like, hey, you know what? We like him. Jason right. Statham's son. Let's just, he's good guy because we, now we say he is. Which brings us to the end of this movie, which is Brixton, the Idris Elba character, who I have to say I enjoyed quite a lot. I just love having Idris Elba in these movies beside Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham. He he doesn't necessarily die exactly, I would say. He suffers a sort of Disney villain death where he gets kind of powered down and then falls off a cliff into some water. Which suggests to me, and I know I'm not alone here, that perhaps if Idris Elba decides that he would like to do more of these movies, they will figure out a way to bring him back, presumably as the member of some new family of good guys with our heroes. I, I mean, I think they're certainly leaving that possibility open. And the, the person who turns him off is a character that we only see as basically kind of like a you know VU sound meter, kind of computer disguised voice of the right. ETN director. And that is a character, I believe the voice was literally done by Ryan Reynolds because it's credited to Champ Nightingale, which I, is one of his screen aliases. Ah. But they have interviewed the screenwriters and the director about this movie and they were like, yeah, we don't know who that is. We're going to, so the character <laughs> makes some, that character makes some reference to like having a some backstory with Hobbs and be like, oh, when you find out who I am, it's going to be one hell of a reunion. But none of the people involved in the movie know who that character is. And it's just like, if we get to make another Hobbs and Shaw movie, we'll figure it out then. I feel like there's a lot of kind of wonderful possibilities that it could be. You know, I don't know if we know much about The Rock's wife, for example, like the mother of his kid, or there's the dad who's sort of dangling out there. I would like it to in some way be a third or or arguably fourth sort of shaved head, uh, muscly Hobbs and Shaw eaten guy, like like a Bruce Willis, perhaps? The best guess I saw, and I don't even remember this might have been yours, but someone mentioned like, well, what if it's like Lucas Black's character, you know, from Tokyo Drifter? The movie seemed to completely have forgotten about. So it'd be really oh, wow. I mean, it would be so in keeping with the totally random spirit of the movie. It's just like, what if we just brought the back this character that nobody remembers at all? But I mean it could literally be anybody and they have no idea who it is. We will find out if and when they get around to telling us. Huh, yeah. The character I actually thought it might be is the Charlie Theron character, because I think it's announced that she's part of whatever Fast 9. But if they don't know who the answer is, then maybe that's not actually who it is. Okay, so I think we both enjoyed this movie. You perhaps a little, a little less than I did. Although you've been laughing a lot, re- reminiscing about it. I mean, you know, it like it wore me out, but there are also there are moments when there's stuff in it that is so ridiculous, like a motorcycle that splits in half and the, mm-hmm. you know, chain full of trucks hanging off the cliffs of Samoa that are just like I just laughed at how like fun and ridiculous they were. So and and I don't I don't think any anybody who goes to see Hobbs and Shaw is expecting any more out of the movie. So it is you know, it is a widget that is meant to do a thing and it does that thing quite well. Yeah, I can't imagine this movie getting like a cinema score of anything other than an A just because like people can't really complain about it delivering so fully on exactly what the trailer promised, essentially. I would, yeah. It's not like my favorite of these movies. I think my favorite is probably still Seven just between the sort of Burj Khalifa jumping from one tower to another sequence and the what if we parachuted cars out of a plane <laughs> sequence. Uh, there's not anything that quite rises to those heights in this one, but it's got some good stuff. Yes. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Force. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt, and our engineer is Merritt Jacob. Thanks for listening.